Folks, we're starting the book of Judges this evening. I started to study it, and I found it to be pretty discouraging, to tell you the truth. It's a most unpleasant book. What a thing to say. But I found it to be rather unpleasant. I shouldn't tell you that, um, because I don't want you to make a retreat out of the study of the book of Judges, but... It shows Israel at one of its darkest periods in its history. And this is so disconcerting because we're talking about Israel delivered from bondage by God's grace. We're talking about the Israel whom God sustained in her wilderness wandering. We're talking about the Israel to whom God bequeathed a land of promise. And yet this same Israel we shall see turned away from her God And if you can imagine this, took on the false gods of the people in this very place of promise. Now, I suppose this book wouldn't be as unpleasant as it may be if we restricted its application only to this unusual ancient people group, the Israelites, but we can't do it. I think you will see as we go through Judges over the next few weeks and months I think you'll see that ancient Israel is really a stark picture of modern-day America. That's the part that really discouraged me. I saw our own situation here as Americans in the book of Judges. In fact, someone made this statement, a sad story of one nation under God. This is what he said Judges is a sad story of one nation under God that turns from the God it once was under. And my heavens, does that sound like the United States of America today? And so you'll see this book is not just a history book about a faraway ancient people. This book really is like a mirror reflecting the very day in which we live. To give you a little background into the book, let's answer a couple questions like, why is it called Judges? Well, at this time in ancient Israel, they didn't have kings yet. It wasn't yet a monarchy. And so they had a class of leaders known as Judges. They were called Judges because they ruled with regard to civil matters affecting the people. But please don't limit their function to that. The Hebrew concept of judges meant more than just those who adjudicate civil disputes from the bench. It really means something more like those who deliver a people group when they are oppressed. In a way, these judges are like saviors to rescue the people from those who oppose her. Hence, the book is called Judges because, depending on how you count, you'll see by name about 12 or 13 of them as we go through these 21 chapters. Who wrote the book? We don't know. Most people, many people, say Samuel because they say he was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, and therefore they believe, maybe so, that he was a likely candidate for the authorship of the book. I don't know, maybe. When was it written? Well, the book covers about 350 years in Israel's history, beginning in around 1400 BC, just to give you a frame of reference. It covers the period from the death of Joshua. 
to the time of Israel's first king, Shaul, or Saul. Now, what is the major theme of the book? This is quite disturbing. I think you can find the theme of the book, interestingly, in the very last book, uh, the last uh, chapter of the book, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. I know you've heard this before. It's a terrible thing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then this part, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the very sad theme of the entire book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, folks, when the people of a nation are bent on doing their own thing, it is not long before that nation will find itself in serious trouble. Welcome to the United States of America right now. So what characterized ancient Israel uh, seems to characterize modern-day America. And so everyone doing what was right in his own eyes, that kind of means the death of absolutes, the death of absolute truth, meaning there really are no moral absolutes. There's no fixed standard of what's right or what's wrong. It's called moral relativism. You say to someone, that's not right, that is wrong. They say, that's your opinion. Moral relativism. And so that seems to be characterizing America today. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Notice the verse does not say everyone did what was wrong in his own eyes. It says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's the point? It's not that people sought out then and now to deliberately do that which is wrong. It really was a more subtle problem they think they're doing what's right, but they're making no recourse to moral absolutes emanating from God's word. No, uh, the way they're arriving at a standard of what's right and wrong is what feels right and wrong on a personal subjective level. So for instance, you have two well-intentioned same-gender people who, out of love for one another, wish to marry one another, to publicly register their dedication and devotion, their commitment to one another. They're not seeking to do that which is wrong. They don't think what they're doing is wrong. They're doing what seems right in their own eyes. Or you have a heterosexual couple, not yet married, and they're a young couple perhaps, and they choose to live together way before marriage. And They've thought through it, and they just think it's a right thing to do. Economically, it's good for the two of them to share the expenses of an apartment, perhaps. One can provide safety for the other and um, kind of fellowship. They're not deliberately out to do what's wrong. The problem is they've determined a standard of rightness without reckoning on what's right from the point of view of God. They don't believe in absolute standards anymore. If you think cohabitation is wrong, well, maybe it's just wrong for you, but it may be right for us, they would say. Or you have a young gal or even an older lady who has become pregnant, and this one evaluates her present situation and considers how burdensome it would be at that 
point to birth a baby. The timing is just not right. That person is really not seeking to do wrong. In fact, that person doesn't think what she is about to do to terminate the life of the baby is wrong at all. That person has done an evaluation and is saying, I'm not in a good position to provide the kind of nurture, nurture, even the financial uh, supply that this newborn baby would have. I'm not ready for this yet. I don't want to be tied down. It'll interfere with my vocation. Can you see the thought process? You may approach that person and say, please don't do that. It's very wrong. And that person will say, who says? You. Well, all right. That's your perspective. You see, but there are, there's no set of absolute standards, they would say, that applies across the board. Don't you see? Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes, not what's wrong. You have a person, maybe elderly or not elderly, just someone stricken with a chronic disease, maybe even a terminal disease. And this person from hospital bed does a very careful, rational evaluation of things and says, I do not want to be a burden on those around me any longer. I do not want to be a burden, especially for my children. And so that person makes a decision in some way to terminate uh, his or her life, maybe even with the assistance of a medical practitioner, so-called euthanasia or mercy killing. Now, that person is not contemplating from the hospital bed, doing that which is wrong. That person has had the time to do a careful analysis of things and has determined, no, 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 this is the right thing to do. You see, that's moral relativism. That was ancient Israel. That's modern-day America. Death of absolutes. If there is a God, he surely doesn't have a standard of what's right and wrong that I need to access, consult with, and submit to. No, I'm kind of the master of my own destiny, and I can do my own thing. Folks, it doesn't take too long before uh, the citizenry of a nation uh, are responsible for its demise with that kind of thinking. Welcome to modern-day United States. You see, if we could just restrict all in the book of Judges to wayward Israel, we could leave here comfortably, but uh, the text won't allow us to do it. What was written in earlier times, so we read in the New Testament, was written for our instruction today. If there is a God, he has an idea of what's right and wrong. <laughs> and if by definition he's God, he's the highest authority, he's the most wise, he must be consulted. Even today, we Christians are like God's ancient covenant people, the Jews. If you spend too much time with people, maybe a same gender couple about to be married, you start finding out they're lovely. They're not repulsive or obnoxious. They seem to love one another. They're not promiscuous. This is a serious bond, and they just want to go public with it. Why should they be denied the right that you have? And you begin to find yourself, hmm, wondering whether God really meant what he said about marriage. Some people call it traditional marriage. I hate the term. 
It has the uh, implication that it's old-fashioned. No, no. It stems from creation order. One man irreversibly bound to one woman. I wouldn't have the audacity to rain on somebody's parade, but God has every right to know how best things work, especially the institution of marriage. That's his idea. We didn't come up with it. So he has an uncompromising moral standard. And today, even we members of the church are largely prone to being compromised in our own convictions, just like you will see Israel was in her day. So what I'm going to do now for the next few moments is I'd like to highlight some of the lowlights in the first two chapters of this book, just to give you a glimpse at what was happening in ancient Israel. Israel, under its great leader Joshua, had crossed the Jordan River and had successfully conquered uh, the native peoples of the land. It was called the land of Canaan, so the native peoples would be called the Canaanites. But pockets of resistance still remained. And at first, it seemed as if Israel was going to do things God's way and remove all Canaanites from the land. But soon, we see Israel began to disobey God's command. Here is what God commanded Moses to tell the people as they prepared to enter the land. It's recorded for us in Numbers. Chapter 33, verse 51, God said to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Pretty clear word from God. Why is it that God gave such a command? Well, verse 55 of Numbers 33 gives this answer. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as stabs in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And what is it that Israel did with God's very clear command? Well, let's have a look, a quick survey look at what she did. We're in Judges chapter 1, verse 21. I'll go quickly. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27 of Judges 1, but Manasseh did not take possession of Beit Shan and its villages, or Ta'anach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Verse 28, it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Getzer, so the Canaanites lived in Getzer among them. Verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them and became subjects of forced labor. 
Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab or of Achzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bet Anat, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anat became forced labor for them. So what's the problem with living with the Canaanites? I mean, aren't the Israelites God's covenant people? Weren't they supposed to influence the people groups around them? What about us? Isn't that the great commission for us? Aren't we to be living proof of a loving God to a watching, unsaved world? Aren't we to be influencers of the surrounding society? Aren't we to impact on the culture? Yes. We are to be with non-believers, but we are not to be like non-believers. Because God, as with Israel, so with us, wants us to be distinctly set apart, holy. He wants us to influence the surrounding culture, but he surely does not want the surrounding culture to influence us. And God knew that ancient Israel would be compromised by her close association with the rather evil, pagan, idolatrous Canaanites in the land. And so God ordained that Israel would be separated wholly a people unto his own glory. He knew that the ways and the words and the wickedness and the women of the Canaanites would lead his redeemed people away from him. Therefore, he commanded the Israelites to completely and totally drive out the idolatrous and evil Canaanites from the land. But Israel did not do this. And what's the result? Chapter 2, just a few verses, verse 11 and on. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are Canaanite false gods. And they forsook the Lord just as God anticipated. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and Well, they bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtarot. Those are the male and female deities, false deities of the Canaanites. In Judges, you will see a painful recurring cycle of events. We can call it the sin cycle. I mean, you'll see it painfully uh, reoccurring maybe a dozen times. The first element of the sin cycle is the rebellion of God's own people, rebelling against him, taking on the worship of the gods of the land. And then the second recurring element in what we could call the sin cycle is the judgment of God upon his people. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 14, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them. 
so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. First, in the sin cycle, you have the people's rebellion. Second, you have God's retribution. And here's the third recurring element in the sin cycles we will see painfully repeated in Judges, verse 15. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. The people, severely distressed, you will see, repent and cry out to the Lord. That's the third element in the sin cycle. The first is rebellion. The second is divine retribution. The third, under distress, is repentance. Now, verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Here are the four elements in this repeated sin cycle. First, there is the rebellion of the people. Then there is the retribution of God. Then there is the repentance of God people. And then there is restoration by a gracious God who sends judges, deliverers, many saviors to rescue his people. But the deliverer dies and the people then, you see it all through Judges, begin to rebel again. There is peace in the land and between the people and God for so long as the judge, the deliverer, the savior is alive. But that's it. When the deceiver passes on, as you will see, the people turn away from God again. And so we read in verse 19, but it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. The sin cycle. And then we read this now in chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. That's a terrible statement. God is big and strong, sovereign, all-powerful. He could have removed all the peoples in the land on Israel's behalf. I believe he intended to, but because of Israel's rebellion and sin, God chose not to. These are the nations which the Lord left. Why did he do that? What purpose did he have in mind? Here it is, to test Israel by them. Not test in the sense that God is waiting to see if they get a passing grade, no, it's an opportunity for them to be proven and to develop. With the presence of these pagan nations in the land, Israel would have a ready opportunity to come to grips with their sinful inclinations and their need for constant dependence on Almighty God. That's our situation, my fellow Americans. We're still here in a land characterized now by the death of absolutes, calling what's right wrong, calling what's wrong right. Why doesn't God just deal with them, wipe them all out? No, he's left them in the land to test us, to prove us, 
for us to develop a kind of spiritual arsenal of weapons whereby we resist the temptation to go with the flow, compromise, and be like those out there who we want to be like us in here. And so God has left us here for that purpose. But there's a second reason why God left the nations in the land. It's given in verse 2 of chapter 3. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel, look at this, might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. See, Israel was chosen, and this is true of chosen people. Chosen people come under fire. Therefore, they must be alert and equipped for the battle. You, my fellow Christians, are a chosen people. Therefore, you too are targeted. The sad thing is many of us in the body of Christ don't even know we're in a war of a spiritual kind. God has left uh, the influences of the world around us. It's distressing to us. It's frustrating. We're getting angry. We're getting cynical. But he's left them here specifically so we could learn the art of war. You do it by experience, you see. God wants us to have the experience of sharpening our spiritual weaponry by being amongst people who would cause us otherwise to surrender. And many in the body of Christ are. Many of us in our lives are rather indistinguishable from the folks out there who are still in darkness. You see, we're just the same as ancient Israel. So we're in a spiritual battle and must learn the art of spiritual warfare. Now, here's what happened, verse 3. These are the nations that God left in the land. Five lords of the Philistines, they had five major cities along the Mediterranean coast of Israel. All the Canaanites and the Sidonians, that would be in modern-day Lebanon, and the Hevites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamat, They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. And so you can see, we too are being tested, and we hate tests. I do, you do, but apparently they're good for us. I read this in James (laughs) chapter 1. I bet you're familiar with it. First few verses. Count it all joy, my brethren. That's the life verse of my dear brother and yours and Chuck Schneider who's going through very serious medical challenges right now. You know about this? Needing very serious foot surgery. A tendon has died. A foot is not working. He starts out with a measure of discomfort each day and then is in fairly severe pain by the end of the day. He has to have that surgery, but recently found out he also has cancer, prostate cancer, scheduled for removal of that in December 5th. Today, haven't heard from him. They were running imaging tests to see if the cancer is even limited to that organ. What does he do first? Is it the foot? Is it the prostate? This hot on the heels of Wonderful Maureen Schneider's battle with her own cancer, four surgeries. And I talked to Brother Chuck, you can too. How are you doing, I say? 
What does he say? Just what it says here in James. Count it all joy. Yeah, yeah. Listen. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Don't you see? The threats to our devotion to Christ are necessary. The testing that comes through life's circumstances is designed to produce a faith of an enduring quality and let endurance have its perfect result. Here it is, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're very, very distressed by the increasing anti-Christian ideology and philosophy we are subjected to in our day. Don't be so distressed. God could take care of it in a second. But he's left that here for our benefit, for our testing, and so that we may become more adept in the utilization of spiritual weaponry. Listen, folks, I think we need our fellow church men and women more than ever because it's cold out there, and we can be picked off one at a time We need to come in here from time to time, even if we don't like each other that much. That's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. We need to be with people who are like-minded Christians, where the norms of life are biblical here. We need to be built up to go out there, face those who out there God is allowing in order to give us an opportunity to grow and perfect our faith. Now, verse 5, Judges 3, the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites. Here are their names, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites. And here's what happened now, verse 6. God knew this. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. As a sidelight, could I tell you, verse 6 is used by some uh, to support racist uh, views against racial intermarriage. Now, if you have a conviction against uh, racial intermarriage, have at it. But don't blame it on Scripture. That's you. Here, what God is outlawing is not racial intermarriage. He's outlawing being unequally yoked. This is an illustration of the New Testament principle. Let not a believer be yoked in marriage to a non-believer. Now, there are enormous societal pressures put upon a racially uh, mixed marriage. But if God has led you together and you know what you're getting into, have at it and Don't worry about what society says because God does not prohibit that arrangement. That's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about spiritual inequality for what fellowship does a believer have with a non-believer. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians. This is an illustration of it. And God knew this. You see, you're leaving the Canaanites in the land. You're going to live with them. You're going to take on their ways. You're going to take on their gods. And then you're going to intermarry. And when you do that you will embrace their gods. And so God outlawed this long in advance. Deuteronomy 7, listen, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. 
Did it happen? Yep. Verse 7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherot. You see? The Israelites were called to influence others, but they were being influenced by those others. They were to be living proof of a loving God to an unsaved watching world, but instead they were succumbing to the influence of the surrounding culture. And so the anger of the Lord, verse 8, was kindled against Israel. Here's what he did. He sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishatayim. That's a bad name. Kushan, here's what it means. Kushan of double wickedness. If they would not submit to the God who loved them, they will be enslaved and have to submit to a man whose life is characterized by a double dose of evil. If they rejected the prince of peace and the God of light, then they'll be enslaved to a prince of darkness. And that's what happened. He was the king of Mesopotamia, meaning the land between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And the sons of Israel served Kushan Rishatayim eight years. You know what's tragic? This was their first servitude after they were freed from slavery of 400 plus years in Egypt. There's a parallel to us. Listen, when you get saved, when you are saved, you are immediately freed from uh, the penalty of sin. Boom! Case dismissed. But there are other challenges. Though the... uh, Though the penalty of sin is instantaneously removed, the presence of sin is not. So the presence of sin is a foe uh, even the saved person has to regularly confront. Paul called it a flesh versus spirit battle. And even though we be freed from a cruel taskmaster, the penalty of sin, we have to wage war daily against the influence of sin, because it's still very present in our life. As with Israel, they got freed from Egyptian bondage, but they were still in bondage to the flesh, even in the land of promise. And so for eight years, God's chosen people were forced to live as slaves. This is what happens to a sinning Christian. That one, I don't believe, forfeits salvation, but that one surely forfeits the blessings, benefits, and joys of salvation. The sinning Christian is the most miserable creature on earth. The sinning Christian now is forced to live under the cruel taskmaster of a pattern of sin and guilt and shame and all those things that Master Jesus came to set us free from. But if God really chose these Jews, and if he really loves them, how could he let all this happen? Well, here's what he does. He allows the consequences of our sin to run their natural course. Israel craved idolatry and pagan ways. And a grieving heavenly father said, okay, I will give you the desires of your heart. Be careful about what you let your heart crave. Because your loving father may say, I shall let you have it so that you see it cannot meet your needs. And so God allowed ancient Israel to experience the consequences of their their sin. No, no, not to destroy them. No, to help them 
to get back to where they were supposed to be. And so we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's what God wanted for Israel. That's what he wants for us. So verse 9, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, eight years of bondage to this intensely cruel man, when they cried out to the Lord, eight years later, what took them so long, the Lord raised up, here it is, a deliverer. And so you see the phases. There's sin on Israel's part. Uh, there's consequence. Uh, Israel cries out to God in their distress, and God sends a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Notice here, God did not wait until the Israelites got it all together. Nope. He provided to deliver to them, a deliverer to them purely by grace, didn't he? He was responding not to any virtue in them. There was none. He was responding to their agonized cry. He was responding to their misery, not to their virtue. When you got saved, that's the heart cry God heard. You didn't dare make any promises to God, did you? Save me and I'll clean up my act. Save me and I'll do this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> You're spiritually dead in your transgressions. <laughs> God heard your heart cry, oh, God, save me. I'm lost. I lack peace. I don't know why I'm here, where I'm going. I'm overcome by patterns of misbehavior, sin in my life. I cannot break. I have no assurance of what happens to me after death. Rescue me from it all because I'm in misery. Be my savior. That's the cry God hears. And that's the cry he heard with regard to ancient Israel. And now we are told of the first judge slash deliverer slash savior sent by God in response, in his gracious response to Israel's cry. Here's his name, verse 9, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He was from a good family. You've heard of Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, spies who went on a reconnaissance mission into the land and brought back a good report. This guy, Othniel, came from a good... His uncle was hot. He was a good, godly man. Othniel means God's lion. And Othniel proved himself to be worthy of the name. Because if you back up to chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, listen. Caleb said the one who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it was a Canaanite city. He challenged the Israelite. The one who goes up against the city and captures it, I will even give him my daughter, Achzah, for a wife. That's what he said. Who stepped up? Verse 13, chapter 1. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And so he gave him his daughter, Achzah, for a wife. Othniel stepped up. He was a brave and courageous man. He led the way and took that Canaanite city, and in return, he gained his wife. He made himself available to God back then. God took note of it, and God chose him to do even greater things now. He was battle-tested, and God said, I got a greater battle for you now. Having proven himself faithful in an earlier battle, God selected Othniel for greater service now. Verse 10, 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Look, Othniel had good life experiences, and he came from a good family, but that stuff wasn't good enough. He needed more, and he got it. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. We're praying for God to ready the next pastor of this church. I hope you're praying. That's how we'll find him. Whatever else may be true of him, this is indispensable. It must be a man showing evidence of the Spirit of God being upon him. This church ought to look to credentials, academic and otherwise, absolutely. But if all this guy has going on is academic stuff and whatever, but there's no evidence of the Spirit of the Lord upon him, we in a heap of trouble. You pray that your marvelous search team of 12 very diverse, wonderful people will be led by Almighty God to a man of God upon whom the Spirit of the Lord is evidence. And here's what he did first. He judged Israel. Ah, see what a godly leader does? He says, uh, it starts with y'all. He says, uh, weed your own garden. He says, uh, get it together, Israel. Repent. Turn from your sin. And after he confronts Israel's sin, then and only then does he confront Israel's enemies. And so we read when he went out to war, the Lord gave Kushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Kushan Rishatayim. You know what happened? Verse 11. The land had rest for 40 years. Why only 40 years? Well, because Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This whole thing is sad to me. It's just a shame that uh, the shelf life of their right walk with God <laughs> extended not one day beyond the life of their deliverer, Othniel, their savior. And I just thought, wouldn't it be magnificent? Wouldn't it be great to have a deliverer, a, uh, oh, I don't know, a savior, empowered and enabled by God? Who would not die? You know of anyone who fits the bill, who satisfies those prerequisites? Jesus does. Up from the grave, he arose. The sting of death was removed by his resurrection power. Jesus lives. We don't celebrate that only on Easter. We ought to celebrate the resurrection, which distinguishes this Savior from all other pretenders to the throne. And if we really believe that our Deliverer and Savior lives, we ought to make it our sincere commitment to go against the flow of the prevailing culture out there and take our stand with a living Savior who sits enthroned on high, cheering us on. Come on, my sons. Come on, my daughter. Don't be influenced, be an influencer. And he is saying, I'm looking for men and women who will do what Othniel did. I'm looking for men and women willing to be saved and saviors of others out there. I've got no fancy ending, just this invitation. 
would you be willing to get with that program? Cynicism, bitterness, anger, you know, protest, placards, whatever. Okay, if you get some relief. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, uh, oh God, I don't care what the statistics are. I don't care what the numbers are. I don't care what the prevailing attitude of the day is. I do not believe in moral relativism. I take my cues from your word, for it is inerrant. It is unchangeable. It's not subject to the vicissitudes of culture. Culture, its values come and go. Oh, no. Oh, God, you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So, too, are your moral absolutes. And no matter what the prevailing majority view is out there, oh, no, I won't be obnoxious, but I'll be committed to your word. I'm not going to go with the flow I'm willing to stand out because there are people out there in Peru and in Pearland who need to see God's lions and lionesses. They're not strong in our own strength. Othniel, with all he had going for him, had to be anointed by the very Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had to affect him then, but the Spirit of God now has taken up his abode in us. Think about it. We don't have an excuse. We have everything we need. We are empowered to do what our Father wants us to do. The problem is not out there. I noticed God was more angry with his own people than he was with the Canaanites. The Canaanites were living in a very consistent way. They were pagan, idolatrous, unregenerated evildoers. They were doing their thing. They were very consistent. I think God is angry with our inconsistency. We praise, we sing, we do all kinds of stuff. And then when we go out there, we go to the same doggone movies. (laughs) We engage in the same recreational pursuits. We drink the same goofball stuff. We use the same unacceptable vocabulary. And we let the world out there compromise our convictions. I'm nervous, folks, because the church is caving in. There's nothing wrong with cohabitation. If two people, regardless of their gender, love each other, who am I to rain on their parade? You're nobody, but your God has determined what's right and what's wrong. You're living amongst the Canaanites. God can wipe them out and will one day, but he's left them here for our good We need to perfect our spiritual weaponry. I was a chaplain in the army, but only in the reserves. I never was in a combat zone. So we would train and read books on warfare. But my son was an army chaplain in a combat zone in Afghanistan. He learned war. I just read about it. God says to us, oh no, you have to develop your spiritual weaponry. You couldn't be in a better life situation now, says God, because you have opportunities to learn to depend on me. Make use of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Perfect your spiritual weaponry. So I want to ask you, if you don't mind, I'm going to just simply close in prayer and invite you to Kind of close your eyes and bow your heads just for a second. Maybe it'll be better if you stand up and it'll be easier to get out of here. Just stand up for a second. Can I invite you to do some 
non-theatrical but very potent business with God, would you say something like, oh God, I want to be like Othniel. <laughs> I want to be a deliverer of others having been delivered by you. I want to deliver them from this terrible malady which has persuaded them, if it feels good, do it. If it makes sense, it must be truth. I want to deliver people from this terrible pattern of thinking. It's okay for everyone to do what's right in his own eyes. Oh God, I want to show them there are absolutes. The God who made us cares how we live and he's given us guidelines for it. There are moral absolutes. I want to live by them and tell people of them. Would you make a commitment? Oh, God, I may not be like Othniel, but would you so empower me in the presence and power of your spirit that I'm a lion or lioness of God just like Othniel was? Pray now. Oh, God, keep me from compromise, desire to fit in, win favor, to be like the very people who are lost and in need of salvation. Oh God, keep me from that. Help me to go against the flow. Oh God, the world does not need more Christians. It needs more Christians who are living like it, like followers of Christ. Make me one of them. Pray that. Lion of Judah, impart that quality in us. Not an obnoxiousness, an aggressiveness, a bitterness, a cynicism. Just an unwavering, uncompromising commitment to your absolute standards of right and wrong as so clearly laid out in Scripture. Oh, God, make us to be that representative of absolute truth in this day of moral relativism so that we, in the power of your spirit, may by your grace be used to deliver ones from darkness to you, the ultimate deliverer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living. Thank you for being the resurrection and the life. Thank you, O oh God, that you've given us a reason to get in the battle, to perfect our spiritual weaponry, for we serve our risen Savior. Oh God in heaven, when you come back, may we be presented before you as ones who went against the grain, the flow, the societal norms, and were distinct, distinctly holy as thou art holy. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.